everybody, welcome to Pod Rocket. Uh, I'm Noel, lead engineer. Uh, with me today is Stephanie Eccles. Um, Stephanie's a software engineer at Microsoft. She's author of Modern CSS, uh, co-host of the Word Warp podcast, um, and so much more. Uh, thanks for coming on, Stephanie. How's it going? Doing well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, yeah, I, think, I feel like there's a bunch of stuff we could talk about today. Um, but let's kind of just start with your background a little bit. Um, kind of where do you come from? How'd you get into web and software? Um, and like, how did that progress to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my total time interacting with the web professionally um, is about 15 years. But as kind of an early teen, I happened to go to a summer camp where I was given a copy of Macromedia Flash. Um, and (laughs) so a little context there, you can attempt to do the math on that. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. so, uh, yeah, that was exciting. That was for those that aren't familiar, which I wouldn't blame you these days. Um, flash was heavily, uh, kind of had two ways to interact with it. One, maybe you were just doing strictly animation. So you would do keyframe animation, you know, frame by frame, drawing out your shapes, your characters. I mean, people did really complex things with it. But also, it was the way to produce really interactive, immersive experiences before we had the maturity that we have today of JavaScript and other animation libraries. Um, Unfortunately, it was woefully inaccessible, (laughs) but we also, unfortunately, weren't worried about that at the time. <laughs> but for me, you know, none of those things, I had no idea about accessibility or, you know, any of any semantics, nothing. For me, it was my gateway because it meant I could put my, and I'm doing very heavy quotes here, my art on the web. Um, so that led to me just like exploring what is HTML because I had to learn it a tiny bit to embed the flash file. Uh, had to learn about servers, FTP, all these things. Um, it was much more manual. Um, you know, we didn't have the niceties of GitHub and <laughs> things like yeah, that. Right, right, right. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, so along the way, that led to me discovering WordPress um, because that was the beginning of its, you know, reign, as it were. Um, and I ended up actually spending a decade of my career developing. Uh, working in marketing and advertising agencies. My degree is actually in advertising. Um, But doing internships related to web development. Um, But again, being around long enough that I remember when the article came out about responsive web design. And (laughs) I was working for an advertising agency at the time, um, you know, going through that whole transformation. But So all those kind of experiences led to, like you said, where I am today on, um, had a few other experiences where I led the development of a multi-platform design system in my previous role. I'm still doing a little bit of design systems work, something I do enjoy. Um, But I kind of found that we were kind of having a gap in some educational resources around CSS where... A lot of what I would see, you know, get traction on social media or even across kind of the big publications was really focused on kind of more the tricks idea, um, tricks and hacks. And meanwhile, CSS as the language has grown up just immensely, especially over the last couple of years. Um, 
And so Modern CSS is in-depth tutorials on practical applications of CSS. The intent is to uh, help you both address a specific problem. For example, the most popular articles are around customizing form inputs, um, but also to teach you related things to just uh, you know, improve and upgrade your toolbox along the way. So introduce you to uh, all that modern CSS has to offer, get you more familiar with layout methods like grid and flex, and introduce other related topics that are very important for the modern web, um, accessibility and semantics and things like that. Yeah, nice. Awesome. Thank you for that. Thank you for that kind of that breakdown. Um, you, you, you talked about like how the, the content that you were seeing most often, uh, or you, you were reaching most often was like CSS tutorials and content that was kind of like uh, tricks and hacks. It was like kind of how, how they, how it was skewed. Do you feel that that is a product of like SEO optimization? Um, like people creating content that would bubble up high when they're like, you know, Oh, how do I make a text box? you know, like shift to the left side of its surrounding div. So then they like end up on a page. It's like specifically to do this thing. Do you think that that kind of led to this culture of like 10 quick CSS tricks or, or what do you think drove that? Yeah, I think that's a good theory that SEO would have played a part for some people. But I think, um, you know, on Twitter, <laughs> hacks that are easy to grok in a couple seconds is what gets traction. And it doesn't matter if it's accurate and it doesn't matter how useful it is, unfortunately. Um, you know, and, and that's not, you know, an in-depth tutorial isn't going to address that. But for folks that are wanting to fill a skills gap that they have, you know, that's more kind of the market. Um, I'm, I'm hoping ends up, you know, enjoying my materials. Um, and I think there's absolutely a place for, you know, those tricks and hacks that kind of sound, I'm not trying to cast those in a negative light. You still learn things. I love creative coding. I absolutely encourage experimentation and play. Uh, that's where my other project came out of style stage. So absolutely, um, you know, I want that to exist on the web. Um, I think that to your point of where this kind of came from, though, was also that CSS has kind of had an unfortunately bad rap. And um Again, that's what I'm hoping to address is exposing folks to what is now available so um, that we can move on from things that truly were hacks because we have actual improved methods native to the language uh, that require 0% hacks. <laughs> so Yes, nice, nice. Yes, do you think, do you think that that bad rap um, that CSS kind of has now, is that a, a, a product of shortcomings of like its capabilities before, or do you think it was it was how people would go about trying to write CSS for stuff they were building? A combination. It hugely depends. You know, everybody's lens for anything that they do on the web is so different, and it, it is influenced by your journey to the web, how much mentorship and guidance you've had. If you're solo, if you're on a team, what that team makeup is like. Um, and I think your own motivation to seek out and learn new things. Um, and all these things are valid. We're all at the end of the day, we need to do what we need to get done. Right. So, um, but yeah, there are, you know, even the originators of <laughs> getting CSS into the web, um, there's actually a, a list of things that they acknowledge were kind of mistakes. And that's okay. Hindsight's twenty twenty. There's no way when they could have predicted some of these things that early on. Because um, if we remember, 
the web itself is what, 30 years old. <laughs> yeah, so right. this is not a very long timeline we're talking about. We expect there to be improvements, just like there's improvements in JavaScript. Mm-hmm. But also all that said, um, I think an important thing to keep in mind is, again, just like JavaScript, um, CSS has been colored by not having browser compatibility. And sometimes that's been harder to polyfill. That's been harder to get around. Um, And that's led into some of that negative press, if you will. But that's improving. Um, And we're actually at kind of peak cross-browser compatibility and something that the top browser makers, Chromium, Safari, and Firefox are actively working towards. There's a project called Interop. They did it last year, 2021, so now it's 2022. And they are making a concerted effort to have cross-compatibility of these upcoming features, which is really exciting. And uh, it's definitely important to me to spread that message so folks can, you know, help move on from those uh, negative sentiments or, you know, old, older, outdated ideas they have about the language. Yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, I feel like Interop has come up several, like on the last several episodes I've hosted. Like it I'm keeps, sure. It, it keeps, everybody keeps landing on or talking about it. And I know it's always encouraging, you know, the, um, to see that there's time and energy being spent, like ensuring we're like building out standards, making sure the web is still open and accessible. Like it's very uh, encouraging when there's a lot of other like bleak stuff going on in the tech space. Um, it's it's good to see. Um, cool. So yeah, I think we're like, I'm, I'm, I'm curious then when you, when you decided to start modern CSS, were you, were you envisioning your um, readers like coming and landing on in article and kind of, uh, you know, using what it was talking about to fix a, like a specific problem they were having, or were you kind of hoping people would come at it more to like, take it as if it were a course and like go through and read, like just read content, uh, actively and then apply it as, as needed in, in their day-to-day work? Yeah. So like I said, my degrees in advertising, I worked in advertising marketing. So I had, you know, my own lens of um, kind of a preformed idea of how to structure um, my posts, which uh, was trying to hit at a few different angles. I definitely know, uh, fully aware of the SEO angle, (laughs) Yeah, Um, you know, and so absolutely knowing that a subset of users, my analytics support this 100%, a subset of users um, are coming just for the answer. So I want to make that discoverable. You'll find that uh, most, um, especially the early, early articles, have code pins. So you can skip right down to the quote-unquote answer, right? Um, but then I also try to try to structure it in a way that the folks that are there and wanting to learn more deeply, they want to know the why, um, that they can also be served. And so there's definitely been an evolution from when I started the series and how I approach um articles. Um, the first several were, um, so the, the full, the full name of it is modern CSS solutions for old CSS problems. So especially the first ones in this series really adhere to that where literally they were problems I had that now can be addressed with CSS versus, for example, a jQuery plugin, (laughs) um, which again, given, my history over the web, jQuery was a big part of my own story. So um, that's kind of where it started and it's evolved. Um, you know, it's gotten more in depth. Um, and, but again, every article is intended to be, give you practical tips. That's the, you know, solid theme throughout everything. Um, I 
I, it's not necessarily a course, um, but I am looking at how to um, maybe help surface the content if folks, um, you know, you can kind of use it as a, as a learning path for sure. Um, you certainly can go through it, um, you know, and, and find kind of a buildup of skills. So, but it's not officially a course at this point. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Totally. Um, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm curious, this is like a very broad and hard to answer question, but do, do you think that, um, aren't doing enough kind of proactive reading on like, you know, the CSS tools, what's out there, what can be used. And they, they treat it as more of a crutch where they're like going and finding a specific, you know, like find give me the little CSS selector blurb to fix this given problem I'm having, but not like actually learning like the, the CSS as a, um, I don't want to use the word framework, but just like, you know, like learning the language and using it well as they would their like backend or JavaScript, um, like the code that they're writing for, for those. Platforms. Yeah, absolutely. So it's something I think about a lot and again, have my own biased <laughs> viewpoint about it for sure. Yeah, right, right. Um, I, you know, again, it's, it's comes back to where I'll try and to do a job <laughs> at the end of the day. Uh, so while I wish <laughs> folks would take time to learn it more deeply, and while I definitely encourage that, uh, there's a lot of pros to doing that. Um, mostly because you'll avoid hacks, you'll have cleaner code base, more consumable code base by your team. Um, but also recognizing that, you know, there are barriers to that, whether it's just a matter of time, whether it's a matter of, you know, not being able to document those decisions um, in a sustainable way for your team. Um, so, but that's going to be with any, you know, part of the stack, any choice you make in your stack. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, I expect it to be approached different ways. Um, you'll see a comment under common theme is I'll really push um, not push, but I try to incorporate uh, aspects of particularly layout methods, flex and grid, and uh, really showing the power of those. Uh, because it's important to me to convey that while you may think that, you know, have an idea in your mind of what responsive design is, we have got to <laughs> evolve beyond what we've sort of built up already as best practices because we have so many different devices, more than we've ever had, and that will continue to grow. And when I'm talking devices, a concern there is both a variance in viewport sizes, but also device capabilities and very critically user capabilities. So why are they making that choice for a particular device? What settings do they have? So with CSS, there's user preferences we can tap into. And if you're not aware of that, you're not going to be able to use it. Um, so for me, it's more about not necessarily changing minds, but exposing folks to what is available and sort of gently hopefully help guide them to um, choosing what's best for uh, their user, but also, you know, works best for their team. Yeah, there, there. I feel like there's so much. There's, there's so, there's so much to delve into there, and I, I understand why engineers become overwhelmed by it so easily. Just like it's, it's such a huge problem space. Like I was just talking yesterday to, to friends, and like one of them was a web dev, one wasn't. We were, we were just talking about like you know alternate character sets and like reading directions and all this stuff. And it's just like there's, there's such a it's such an interesting problem that I don't think 
anything before the web really had to solve quite this acutely of like, we're trying to make a thing that can be consumed by like almost anyone on the planet. Like, like how do we, how does one even go about doing that? And we're doing our best to make, to like take these tools, namely CSS to figure that out. But it's such a huge task. Like it's, it's so, it's so massive. Absolutely. Hey, this is Emily, one of the producers for Pod Rocket. I'm so glad you're enjoying this episode. You probably hear this from lots of other podcasts, but we really do appreciate our listeners. Without you, there would be no podcasts. And because of that, it would really help if you could follow us on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to bring you conversations with great devs like Evan Yu and Rich Harris. In return, we'll send you some awesome Pod Rocket stickers. So check out the show notes on this episode and follow the link to claim your stickers as a small thanks for following us on Apple Podcasts. All right, back to the show. So if you're like, you know, if you're if you're a web dev and you're you're getting into this space, how do you how do you take all like all of these all of this stuff that you know you want to be doing correctly, um, and how do you work towards doing it right, um, but knowing that it's probably not going to be perfect on your first try and like staying motivated and not getting discouraged? Yeah. So like I said, I'm a big big proponent of experiment experimentation and play. Uh, so what I mean by that is, if you hear about something cool. <laughs> Drop yourself into CodePen, uh, poke at it, look at examples that other people have put out there because people are very quick to put out examples, even of this very cutting edge experimental stuff. And um, even though we know some of these upcoming things uh, like container queries, scope, the has parent selector, uh, these things that you might have started to hear about, we know that you know cross-browser compatibility is coming, if it's on the way, it's being worked on. Um, some have polyfills, but jump into the browsers where it's supported. Um, usually, I think all of the, um, you know, Canary or, or preview versions have these things. Um, but experiment not just to understand them yourselves, but also to be able to give feedback back to the language. And um, I know I tangent a little bit off of what you were talking about, but, um, you know, experimentation is a huge part of it and, and just understanding it. And alongside that, you understand, is it something that is applicable to what you're working on? And it might not be, and that's completely fine. Um, but also just kind of curating your network of, you know, follow the folks that are involved in making specs, follow, you know, an easy one is to follow dev advocates from the different browsers because they're going to keep you up to date, um, in a really easy to digest way, um, following even the GitHub issues if you want to go even deeper. Uh, those are the different ways just to keep apprised of um, what is happening. Um, and it can feel overwhelming, but keep in mind, again, you don't have to use any of these things that are coming out, only if it's right and fits what your needs are. Um, and so I think that helps keep <laughs> the overwhelm to a minimum. Um, but yeah, it's 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 really just again about exposure, knowing what's available, and choosing it when it's right, a right fit. Yeah, nice, awesome, awesome. Um, I feel like that's not not a terrible transition. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, a talk you gave recently at uh, Beyond Talrand, um called "Scaling CSS Layout Beyond Pixels," and it focuses on uh, like responsive design and the issues that you know we'll run into if we continue to use like you know pixel um, 
height width measurements um, using those values uh, for element sizes. I feel like most devs kind of know that that is a thing they shouldn't be doing, but I, 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 I have a hunch that a lot don't know exactly why. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a topic I've become a little more focused on over the last few months. Um, and the idea is that Pixels are something that's familiar. It's been a it's a concept you're introduced to very early on. Typically, <laughs> you, I mean, it's probably the first measurement you use. Um, maybe you expand to percents in some cases if you're building out, you know, beginning to build out grids of using whatever layout method. Um, but um, when you are in a situation where you are building against a layout and if your only concern is matching that layout and that layout happens to perhaps only be a desktop layout and maybe you're using a framework that you're, you know, sort of just assuming works for you um, in terms of, again, our kind of traditional views of responsive design, um, then you may miss the advantages some of the more modern features have for us for scaling your design. And I mean scaling quite literally in terms of zooming and also resize of the viewport. Um, so if zooming seems like it came out of left field, it's because it's an accessibility consideration. We have kind of two um, main criteria to consider there. One is uh, related to being able to resize text up to 200%. Um, and also the criterion related to reflow, which um, states that at a 1280 pixel wide desktop, a user should be able to zoom up to 400% and it should not cause two dimensional scrolling um, unexpectedly. So overall, the experience should be one dimensional, you know, vertical scrolling essentially. Um, and when you are only using pixels, and particularly when you're developing against breakpoints, um, you are only worried about the viewport. You're probably not testing these other environments. And you're going to encounter um, either failure of that text size, um, especially if you're defining font size in pixels because it won't resize under certain circumstances. Um, and you're going to run into overflow or too much or too little space in the reflow context. So instead, um, we have a few other methods available. Um, there's properties, there's functions, um, and then my favorite tool of all time, grid <laughs> layout. Um, also flex, uh, but grid has um, some particular advantages in some cases. Um, so those are the kinds of things I talked about. Um, and the idea is making spacing uh, around elements and making sizing of elements um, Harking back to a, a term that Jen Simmons coined, which is intrinsic web design, which ultimately means how our you know designs will adapt to available space, but also having them more intrinsically linked to the actual content that uh, we have in our layouts. And so, um, yeah, rather than having these strict scales that are based on pixels and these strict breakpoints, we're going to set up our layouts and our sizes and spacing in ways that just is more flexible, no matter what the user context is. So that's, that's the overall idea. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah that's, that's perfect. Thank you. So um, just to, to, to wind back a little bit, you talked about like reflow um, and how the pixel, like setting pixel widths for elements can get us into trouble. Like when we're on, you know, like weird aspect ratios and a user tries to zoom. Can, can you speak a little more to like why that is? Like why does, why does setting the, like a pixel width for a div cause, cause us to get into trouble when a user's like zoomed in on a small device? Yeah, so it's it goes back to just a pixel is the least flexible unit we have, um, least dynamic unit we have. Um, instead, you know, kind of looking at the more dynamic units like rem, which is going to be dynamic to the base font size. So especially when we're talking about the zoom context, um, that's an important, you know, upgrade to use for your font size, but also anything that is font size relative. Um, I tend to use it for most of my spacing, um, my primary spacing unit. But then coupling that with, like I said, for example, the math functions. Clamp might be one that's familiar to folks if they've uh, heard of or experimented with fluid typography. So clamp is a math function where we give it three values. The first is a minimum allowed value. The middle one is our ideal value, which is where we use a dynamic unit. And the third value is the maximum allowed value. So what clamps allows you to do is essentially define a range. And based on the context where that context may be viewport size, if you decide to use viewport units as that middle dynamic value, or I also like to use it for padding and use a percent value. And what's cool about padding and percent, just as an an example of how this dynamicness works, is that padding, uh, when you use percent, That percent is relative to the uh, width or the inline size of the element. So it's actually container relevant, if you will. (laughs) This is something that has existed as a behavior um, pretty much CSS's history, I believe. Um, And when you throw that at clamp, that means, for example, if you picture a grid of cards, and if you use this percent idea on your padding, when those cards in that grid are more narrow, your padding just intrinsically uh, becomes more narrow as well. And when those cards are allowed to be larger, have more space, then they can have that padding grow a little bit. And it just feels more contextually appropriate. And then when it's at that narrow view, you have benefits of gaining back line length and things like that to make legibility um, better of that content. So just finding those ways to switch. And as I said, the contrast to that would be breakpoint dictated classes <laughs> that, again, are solely based on viewport, and that's not appropriate for the context I just described. So that's just one example of the type of upgrade um, that we can make. Yeah, so I, I feel like people end up using breakpoints because they're working on something they have a specific layout in mind, um, and, and they're trying, you know, they realize, oh, when I hit a certain screen width, I want these things on the right side to pop down below you know, like below the, the top element. What What is wrong with like using explicit breakpoint widths to do that? And what like better tools should people be using outside of these functions that can help us like compute values dynamically? What what else, what, what tooling should devs be reaching for? Yeah, so I'm not gonna say should as a hard and fast rule. Uh, for sure, I you you will continue. We will continue to use breakpoints. There are scenarios where 
of course, the complexity of what you're trying to achieve when we're talking about more or less available space, um, we will still have concerns that are most appropriate to handle with a viewport-based media query. Um, so like in the situation you just described, if that's the whole page layout, um, there are ways um, using Flex and Grid that we can address that, um, you know, some folks view that as a little too clever or not readable, and that's a valid concern. Um, but so there are instances where you'll still use view, viewport media queries. I definitely want to make that clear. Um, but when we consider, you know, the layouts of today, um, it's we see a lot of commonality. So a grid-based layout is a huge commonality. You're going to find that everywhere <laughs> where we have, you know, uh, Depending on how long you've been on the web, you may be used to working against a 12-column grid and have that really rigidly defined. Um, again, um, most of the frameworks that exist are going to have breakpoint-based utility classes that you are responsible for manually adding to uh, define how many columns and, and things so that it breaks appropriately. So um, another option is to use CSS grid. Um, or flex, but grid is my favorite method. So <laughs> I'll talk about that one. Um, and we can provide a one line, extremely dynamic uh, definition for our grid template columns, where given the amount of available space, the browser will work out the mechanics of laying out the grid, how many items can fit across in a row, and without a media query, handle breaking those down and stacking them up. So that basic baseline functionality that you're probably expecting a grid to have um, can be greatly simplified. And uh, you still maintain control if you over the sort of intrinsic breakpoint. Um, we still end up defining uh, sort of whichever unit you find appropriate. I like the CH unit, which is the character unit. Um, for when you anticipate that that grid should start breaking down and stacking. Um, so you still have that measure of control. You, of course, still retain control over how wide that container can grow, um, which you would set in a more traditional method, you know, width and so forth. Um, but you just don't have to worry about managing breakpoints. And so whether it's a Zoom context or whether it's a smaller device, this is going to be a method that more gracefully handles those in-between points that you may not have addressed um, with your breakpoints. And uh, we have, um, you know, other methods in Grid that can even further expand upon that, help you build out if you don't need a, you know, three-column grid uh, precisely, but just need more dynamic spacing of elements. I encourage folks to <laughs> look into more of what Grid has to offer. So that's that's another thing that I uh, had discussed in that talk. Nice, awesome, awesome. Um, I think my kind of last big question here is: you you touched a little bit on how you've done work in um, like design systems or on design systems in the past. Um, do you feel that design systems are kind of like butting up against like really responsive layouts by definition, or do you think that they're like we're just like being overly stringent on in certain dimensions with how design systems are saying content should be arranged and spaced. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a proponent of design systems. I'm pro proponent of 
whether you call it a design system or not, componentizing your styles um, to make them easier to understand, work with, share amongst a team, um, whatever that looks like for you. Um, what I have seen as stumbling blocks um, is largely related to accessibility, whether that's text resizing um, or you know resizing of viewports. And sometimes these situations arise simply because we haven't considered that our user doesn't use a full screen browser. <laughs> um, you know, I've seen, I've encountered this myself. I like to do half, half screen on my laptop for working on certain things. Um, you know, and it's kind of amusing, uh, but also mostly frustrating when a design is clearly developed against a breakpoint and that half Z resize isn't a tablet. So guess what? The layout's broken. <laughs> um, and the other kind of caution and, and a pitfall I've seen, whether it's a design system or working with the framework, um, is assuming that that viewport size also correlates to the device capability. So f but what I mean by that is if you assume that a narrow viewport means a touch interface, you're dropping functionality that you definitely shouldn't be dropping um, or making other decisions. Um, so it's just being aware of those pitfalls and there's ways to, um, you know, address those. Um, in terms of layout, um, yeah, like I said, I think it's it's mostly not considering those in-between parts of your breakpoint um, and just generally being less flexible to to the context that your your component could end up in. Um, we end up doing a lot of orchestration from the page level and that's partly limitation of the tools that we have now and partly limitation of, uh, that I don't know how to solve, but that I am aware of, of having documentation, having training that allows developers to very effectively work with those components and include those considerations because it's one thing to build a component and a whole other thing to implement that component. <laughs> and you don't have control of that second part when you're building it initially. So yeah, just, just pitfalls, just things to, uh, be aware of and, and, um, it's really individual per team. So. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, yeah. Like, like, like we were saying before, it's just like such a, such a huge, a huge, problem we're trying to solve elegantly and make it easy for every, everyone, like make it easy for devs, but also users and like bring it all together. So um, yeah, I think everyone putting together resources like this is, is super beneficial for the kind of web community at large. Um, yeah. Awesome. So yeah, I guess with that, is there anything else you want to point our listeners to or plug um, touch on at all? Yes. Yeah, so I, if I may, <laughs> If for those of you listening before uh, kind of mid-July, if you are interested in uh, upgrading your toolbox about CSS, um, I run a workshop with Smashing Conferences. Um, and so that is coming up this July. And you'll we'll cover a whole lot of stuff. So if you have been feeling, you know, after hearing this, like, wow, I'm missing a lot of what is being offered these days, um, that's the goal of the workshop to get you up to speed. So we'd love to see folks there. Um, and if you happen to scan over any of the modern CSS articles, I'm always open to feedback. So, um, yeah, get in touch. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on and chatting with me, Stephanie. It's been a pleasure. Um, yeah, hopefully we can get in touch and, and chat again soon. Yeah.
All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Pod Rocket. You can find us at Pod Rocket Pod on Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks.